0: Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien. If you like the content shared on Paradigmatic Silences, please subscribe or follow the podcast. And if you've missed any of the previous episodes, feel free to explore Paradigmatic Silences archives. Today's episode is a two-part conversation. We have Deborah Watkins and Equity Warrior S gracing Paradigmatic Silences with her presence. Debra has worked to provide quality instruction for Black children and trainings for educators who teach Black children for over 40 years. Let's go inside the mind of Debra Watkins, an Equity warrior S. Welcome to Paradigmatic Silences. I'm your host, Michael Essien, and we have a special guest with us here today on Paradigmatic Silences. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Hello, Michael. First of all, thank you for um, inviting me to your podcast. Um, I'm honored uh, by the invitation. Uh, My name is Deborah Watkins. I am the founder of A Black Education Network. And um, I grew up in Pomona, California, 30 miles east of Los Angeles in um, a predominantly uh, white community initially and there was white flight. And so the neighborhood shifted, but the schools were white from K through 12. I only had white teachers. And uh, fortunately for me, that Eurocentric frame worked well. So I excelled in those Eurocentric schools, Um, but the brother behind me did not do well. Um, And he ended up on the school to prison pipeline which is what we call it now. I didn't have the words back then, but I realize now that that's what happened to my brother. There were um, ten of us uh, in the family: eight, wow. yes, <laughs> eight girls and two boys. Um, my mother was married to my father initially and had seven children: six girls and a son. Uh, and then um, she divorced my fir- my father, and a few years later, married my stepfather. And had three additional children by him. So that's pretty much my background.
0: And so, do you think, um, with growing up in Pomona, well, let me do a side side track question real quick. Uh, my uh, aunt lived in Pomona. Uh, where were you in relation to Ganesha Park? Oh do you know where Ganesha Park is? Oh, my
1: goodness.
0: I just know they had a shark we used to go Listen, and out at the shark.
1: I graduated from <laughs> Ganesha High School, okay? Okay. So, I mean my you know Michael, this is just too eerie. This is all too eerie. I don't know if we're recording still but
0: <laughs> Yeah, we still recording. So, don't, don't worry about it. We good though. This, this is all good okay, stuff. Okay, so, stuff. you
1: know, when you say I'm going to go off on a side track, I don't know if that's you know, part, you know, that happened on another podcast with me, the lady, she said, kept going off. It's like, okay, Deborah, let me get back.
0: So I'm going to pull us back, but I just feel so comfortable with you. Right. So uh, We still, we still continue. Like, I'm not going to cut this out. This is all going to be part of it. we good. good. We're good. Yeah, We're no,
1: good. I, um, so my mother, so we lived, I went to Ganesha high school, which was, uh, um, you know, maybe 10 minutes from Ganesha park. And when I graduated from high school and, uh, well, first of all, I lived in France for a year uh, on a full scholarship and studied there. Um, I was selected as um, one of the top uh, contenders for that scholarship that year. And um, I think well, I was the first Black student from that high school to ever go with the American Field Service AFS to study in, to study abroad abroad. Um, and my mother moved, uh, my mother and my stepfather at the time, they moved to Ganesha Hills, which is right behind the park, uh, from the neighborhood where we had lived when I graduated from Ganesha High School. So yes, I know that neighborhood. I know that park extremely well.
0: <laughs> okay. And you, and you shared some information around um, your brother did not have the same success Um Were there some of your childhood experiences that shaped um, who you are today or how you think about things?
1: Yeah, you know, um, we'll talk about this later, but um, 19 years ago when I first started what was then called the California Alliance of African-American Educators, um, I went to Stanford for graduate school. So I approached Linda Darling-Hammond, who had just arrived on the campus maybe two years earlier, and asked her if she would helped me underwrite um, the Institute. And when I started the California Alliance, we call it CAAAE for short, one of the main goals was to prepare teachers to train them on how to work successfully with Black students. So um, people have often asked me um, why I'm so passionate about uh, Black people and Black children in particular. And do I trace it back to my brother's, you know, tragic murder at age 24 in 1978. And I never, I never thought about that before. Um, as I said, you know, I, um, earned a second master's degree in counseling and, um, had to write a twilight journal to say goodbye to someone who I had not, who had left my life abruptly. And that was my cathartic release. And, um, Now, I use my brother's trajectory as a textbook example of what teachers can do to Black children and Black boys in particular. So my brother, my mother had six girls, as I said earlier, and my brother was the seventh child and coming in as a son, who my father always wanted, was a big deal in our in our in our household. And so my brother was spoiled, rotten by his six sisters. So my brother <laughs> entered kindergarten, he was not bad. He was just spoiled. But the teachers did not see him as spoiled. They saw him as bad. They saw him as oppositional. And so from kindergarten until 10th grade, when a teacher threw a desk at him, I mean, when a teacher called him the N-word and he threw a desk at the teacher and was expelled from the school district, my brother was getting in trouble every year from kindergarten to 10th grade. Now, mind you, our mother did not play that. She was a prison warden at the minimum security women's prison in Chino, um, not far from Pomona. And so we were always on the other side of the law. So my brother's behavior was very, um you know very unlike any of her other children. And of course my mother worked day in and day out. My father was a she was a cook at one point before she became a warden. Um and my father, stepfather was a, a janitor until he became a supervisor of janitors. And so um they didn't have time to to run over to the school. I I tell people in my trainings of teachers that my my mother's parent engagement was don't have me come up to that school, and hmm. if my mom showed up at school, one of us was in trouble. So that was never a good sign. Because think about it, we're talking the '60s, and you know, racism was raging across this nation, and um, you know, it you know, people black people did not have the luxury of good jobs the kind that we have now they had these menial jobs they would be the essential workers of of their day and they couldn't afford to take with kids who were misbehaving at school so um but yeah my brother was getting in trouble all the time and of course my parents were both you know they both had high school educations but no college and so they didn't really understand that perhaps trauma was being inflicted on my brother and making him oppositional and feel um, unwelcome in those white schools. So anyway, I just tell my story because I was the opposite. They, those white teachers loved me. And that's why, you know, I, I really think that um, I, I've never met a teacher, any teacher of any color, black, white, Asian, Latino, Latina, who woke up in the morning and said, let me see how many black and brown kids can I mess up today? I've just never met those teachers. I think most teachers go into education with uh, quote unquote pure hearts, right? Wanting to make a difference in the lives of children. But unfortunately, because our educational system ill equips them to deal with diverse children, many of the white ones and some of the black ones, don't leave them out, and Latinos and Asians. Um, they're not successful with black kids or brown kids. So I'm going to stop there with my brother's story.
0: Yeah. You know, you, just, you bring up, I think, something that's so important. I think when people are ill-prepared to walk into education, to literally do the one job that they're hired to do, which is educate these black and brown kids inside of these schools, that the teacher preparation program has not prepared them for what they experience inside the classrooms. And I do find that teachers default to uh, survival and survival is actually being, um, I guess, reactionary to the things that they're seeing inside of the classrooms. And it's unfortunate because then that leads to what I consider the uh, school to prison pipeline. So let me ask you this Then, So what do you do or what did you do um, for a career? Uh, I think I heard you mention teaching.
1: Yes, so um, I uh, when I was in fourth grade, um, I had a red-haired, roly-poly, freckle-faced teacher named Mr. Stevenson. And Mr. Stevenson said I was the best writer in his class. I should become an English teacher. And of course, I knew nothing about what that entailed. But I decided, Mr. Stevenson said I was the best writer. I'm going to become an English teacher. So from fourth grade on, I had my sights set on becoming an English teacher. So uh, after I lived in France for a year and came back, I went to undergraduate school. First, I did. I went to a community college for two years because while I was in France, um, even though I'd been accepted to my top three colleges, my parents did not know how to fill out the financial aid papers. So when I came back from France, there was no money for me to go straight to my first choice college, which was Pitzer of the Claremont Colleges. So I went to Mount San Antonio College, community college for two years, which in hindsight was the best thing I could have done because I did not have any debt when I finished the first two years of prereqs. And, um, I went on to Pitzer, even though I had scholarships and grants, I still had student loans as well. And in the two years at Pitzer, um, you know, I had enough student loans to take me 10 years to pay them off as opposed to had I started at Pitzer as a freshman, it would have taken me 20 years to pay them off probably. (laughs) So it's a good thing that I ended up uh, at uh, Mount San Antonio College, Mount Sac for short. And then I went to Pitzer. And after Pitzer, I went on to Stanford for um, a graduate school and did my one year there and the Stanford Teacher Education Program step. And I um, was blessed from the first day on that campus um, to have a green slip indicating that I had an interview for a, a real job, um, part-time, two, piece, two periods. And I, um, it was an internship. And not everybody in the STEP program had an internship, but I had a paid internship at Mountain View High School, the old Mountain View High School. Uh, the, it's not there anymore. Um, it's been moved to another location in Mountain View. And so I taught two classes and one of them was journalism. I resurrected the newspaper that had been dead for about 20 years. And um, that was, those were my two classes. I had two master teachers, but I was paid like a regular teacher. Um, and then after I graduated, I mean, after I graduated from the Stanford Teacher Education Program, I went straight to the East Side Union High School District. And I, I taught high school English there for the next 37 years. I was also a project coordinator and a counselor during that time period.
0: Okay. So then you've you've always known that you wanted to be a teacher. Yep. That was something that you were targeting. That's interesting, right? Um, That means that you entered into the field that you desired to be in. Many of the people I talked to, um, that is not the case. They ended up being educators. Well, with that said, so you spent your time um, doing some teaching uh, and then um, you said you spent 37 years?
1: In that, oh. in that one <laughs> district, yes, as a project, yeah. project coordinator and counselor. And what I want to say, though, is that, um, let's see. So 43 years ago is when I started teaching in that district. And at the time, they had an organization called Black Educators of Eastside, Bees, And they in the neighboring school district, um, Alan Rock, they had... Black educators of Alam Rock School. So bees and bears, 38 years ago, came together and created the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators, and I was a founding member of that organization and a and an officer from the beginning. And from four, 1994 to 2001, I was president and um, of the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators, and then in 2001, I help start the California Alliance of African-American educators, because people were saying we were doing some really great work in Santa Clara County and our work needed to be spread abroad. So we were sister organizations with the San Francisco Alliance of Black Suit Educators, Lou Garrett, James Taylor, all of those, Virginia Marshall, all those people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those are still, still my yeah. friends, still my friends, 38 yeah. years later, mm-hmm. friends and colleagues. Um, in fact, um, I took a group of uh, Black educators to South Africa, and Virginia and her sister went with me, um, her sister Liz Pruitt. Um, so yeah, we're just friends and we're, we're colleagues, um, 38 years of that.
0: Okay, so you have an extensive knowledge uh, within education and and working with uh, Black students. So my question to you is, out of all the things that you could possibly do, why a Black Education Network? Why, why start that?
1: That's a great question. So I pointed out that um, 38 years ago, I helped start the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators. And was president from ninety four to two thousand one, and we did some good stuff during that time period. And so people said I should start a statewide organization. So I started the California Alliance of African American Educators and ran it for the next sixteen years. And then I got my first four hundred thousand dollar grant from the Kellogg Foundation fourteen years ago. And in two thousand twelve. I convened a group of 200 conscious Black educators from around the country, as well as Black activists, um, at the Weston O'Hare Hotel in Chicago. And our our job there was to create um, a 25-year blueprint for Black education. And a Black education was born there. Somebody, Dr. Ivor Carruthers, was working on the school-to-prison pipeline and mass incarceration. Dr. Joyce King was working on a Pan-African uh, online university. Uh, we had a youth component with young people actually creating the, the model for what youth organizing would look like. That's what we did in 2012. And um, I always knew that I wanted to scale up those things that have been successful in California and take them national. And that's how a black education was born. A black education wow. network was born.
0: So now black education network is born. Uh, you scaled it up. So what are the goals of uh, a black education
1: network? Well, what
0: are you trying to achieve?
1: Yeah. So our, our main goal, well, we have several goals. You know, one goal is to educate people who stand before Black children. And we've done that incredibly well through our annual summer institutes. Um, We've had 15 now, including this 15th one that ended up virtual. Um, And what I did, uh, Michael, I decided to bring the best and the brightest Black scholars, Black scholars to California, so that these school districts would learn from a Gloria Latson Billings. So I love to read. I love to not read because I have it in my head. I love to tell who we had, right? So the first year two thousand two we had Bob Moses of the Algebra Project. The next mm-hmm. year, the next year we had Beverly Daniel Tatum. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? The third year, we had Gloria Ladson-Billings, Dream Keepers, successful teachers of African american children. Uh, The fourth year, we had Pedro Noguera. Uh, The fifth year, we had Dr. Wade Nobles, who is one of the founders of the Association of Black Psychologists. The sixth year, we had Lisa Delpit, other people's children. The seventh year, um, I brought in Dr. Dr. Shiraki Holly who at the time was one of the founders of the highest performing K through eight school in Los Angeles, Unified School District. It was called the culture and language of Academy of success class. I brought him in so that they could see what the pedagogy looked like when it was applied school wide. And it was amazing. Dr. Shiraki Holly's work is amazing. Um, he ran that school for 10 years, and the only reason he shut it down is because he was an adjunct professor at Cal State Northridge, and the university said, you either get on a tenure track, because he'd been there so long, or you're going to lose your job. And so he didn't want to get on a tenure track, so he shut down class, and he poured himself into his consulting business, which is all about culturally relevant curriculum, to Rocky yeah. Um after Shiraki, uh, we had Carol Lee, Carol Lee and her husband, uh, the former Don Lee, whose name is, um, uh, I'm forgetting his, his, his name. Um, but anyway, uh, he, um, he, Carol Lee and her husband, um, uh, Haki Madubuti. I got his name Haki Madubuti. used to his name used to be Don Lee he was a poet um, anyway, Go they right. have the oldest independent black school in the country. So I brought Carol in to talk about what that how they did that. The ninth year I brought Bob Moses back because California was still wringing his hands about how to teach algebra to black kids and I'm like, Lord have mercy. The man wrote the book he's a MacArthur Genius fellow. He wrote the book on that. And he he taught it to the poorest children in the Delta. So let me bring them back. That was ninth year. Tenth year, I brought in Geneva Gay. Geneva Gay expounded on Gloria Ladson-Billings' research and created the Bible for culturally relevant pedagogy. And um, after the tenth year, I actually shut down the institutes because people kept telling me that they were not getting traction in the field that they were learning all this amazing stuff at our institute. They were the practices and the research and they were excited. I mean, our incidents were getting eight pluses. Districts were sending 15, 20, 25 people. Um, They loved it, but then they go back and they encounter systemic racism or what Dr. John Brown calls Mm -hmm. in his book, Walking the Equity Talk, the politics of implementation. The politics of implementation All of those barriers that stand in the way, and you're a principal, so you know those barriers, you face them day in and day out, that stand in the way of Black and brown children getting the education that they deserve. So I said, okay, to my board, I'm shutting down the institutes, and I'm going to work on statewide policy. I'm going to work on making the environment fertile for the practices that these people have been learning about at our annual institutes. And while I was out working on statewide policy through the Fixed School Discipline Coalition um, statewide committee, uh, Linda Darling-Hammond and her young doctoral students and postdocs were working on the local control funding formula. Mm. And over the next four years, they introduced LCFF. And don't get me started about LCFF because it's been a colossal disaster and like your elder Wright said, there's no money in solutions, and <laughs> that's why they keep us mm-hmm. in poverty, right? Um, these schools are working, Michael, just like they were intended to work.
0: I agree, definitely agree. And and when you think about you think about all the years we've been talking about the opportunity gap, achievement mm-hmm. gap, etc. Um. And there have been people who have been successful in uh, closing that uh, opportunity gap, achievement gap, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And those things have not been scaled up, right? For a variety of reasons. So, so this is what I want. So, uh, I want to lean into this. Then, so when you begin to think about it, I think you've already answered some of it, but I want to go into a little more detail um, around why do school districts have a difficult time improving outcomes for Black and Brown students?
1: Well, you know, Um, you had asked me for the goals of of, a bin. And one of them, I only mentioned one because I got carried away with my institute. Um, But one of the goals was to educate, (laughs) um, you know, teachers uh, of of any color, right, who were working with our kids. And that's how the institutes were born. That's why I created them from the beginning uh, with Linda Darling-Hammond. And the second, uh, one of our, our second major goals is to create STEM scholars. So 19 years ago, I started a STEM program um, when I, well, tw- actually, I started it 23 years ago, um, my first, 22 years ago, my first STEM program. Um, and we named it after Dr. George Washington Carver. But it was, it, I started it with two other men, and it was through their, it was through the Santa Clara County Alliance of Black Educators, where I was president, and their organization. Um, but after three years of incredible success, incredible, Intel picked us up, and we were the Intel Carver Scholars Program for three years. Um, after incredible success with that STEM program, um, my vision and Intel's vision for the expansion of the model across the country, it diverged from the vision of the other two founders. They were afraid that the white people would take their idea and cut them out of the deal. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, And so, I mean, you know, where there's no vision the people perish. Okay. And so I was yes. the school district face. I wrote all the grants and, you know, I carried that, that STEM program. So I quit and it died. And the parents came to me and said, "Miss Deborah, you need to start another program. And that's how the Dr. Frank S. Green Scholars Program was born 19 years ago. I'm going to sit here and brag about it. We sent a hundred percent of our kids to college. graduate in four years with their BA or BS degree, not in eight or 10 years, four years. And 60% of those degrees are in STEM, which is eight times the national average for black students. So I am incredibly proud of the green scholars program. Um, When I decided to create a national organization four years ago, called a bin after incubating it under CAAAE, you know, up until four years ago, um, I spun off the Green Scholars Program as its own 501c3, and hired Dr. Ayadeli Thomas, who was the first Black woman to earn her PhD in Electrical Engineering from Stanford, and that was in 2005. So,
0: okay, before you go on, could you explain about what is the Green Program? The what Green is that?
1: Scholars Program, yes. So. That is a STEM program, science, technology, engineering, and math, Um, again, that I started because I had started an earlier STEM program with the other men. And um, basically, our kids, it's just for Black students, unapologetically focused on Black students. And our children meet one Saturday a month for four hours for STEM instruction. We have the only all African-American science fair west of the Mississippi, Um, maybe further Than that. Um, And um, we start with third graders as young as third grade, and we stay with them until they graduate from high school. So it's a long term commitment on the part of us and on the part of the families. Parent engagements are non negotiable, and I have trained the parents on how to run the program. So if the funders decide one day to not give us any more money, the parents can still run the STEM program without funding. It won't have all the bells and whistles but they can still run a program for their children.
0: And you now have the first person to receive a a PhD from Stanford?
1: Engineering, a Black woman from Stanford is now, she's the one I selected to be the ED. So when I decided um, to spin it off as its own, 501c3, four years ago, I selected Dr. Thomas. Both of her children were in my program at that time. And I and I watched her. I mean, I, I worked with her. I hired her to be the director. And then I worked with her for a, a year and a half. And then I said, she's ready. She's ready to take it over. And I do have a permanent seat on that board. And the seat passes to my progeny so that the founder's vision is always upheld.
0: and that vision is
1: to prepare stem competent black children who use their knowledge to uplift the african diaspora we don't just want the next mark zuckerberg we we train character education is at the foundation of the green scholars program and we want our children to be conscious to be caring and and thoughtful and that they want to give, we instill Black pride in them. We talk about, you know, um, you know, uh, Black history figures and the people who came before them, and why it's their responsibility to continue the legacy of some of these people that they're reporting on.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of the conversation with Deborah Watkins. Part two of Deborah's conversation will be released next week. If you would like more information on paradigmatic silences, visit InsideTheMindOfWithPrinciple.com and read my blog on The Opportunity Gap and Paradigmatic Silences. You can also follow me on Twitter at Michael C. Essien. On January 23rd, 2021, I am offering a workshop called Anti-Racist Discipline. You are the one students have been waiting for. We will explore critical race theory and its ability to assist parents and educators with innovating for equity. You can visit EssienEducation.com and register for the event. Hope to see you there. Paridramatic Silences is sponsored by Essien Education Group. Until next time, this is Michael Essien saying, May equity and social justice empower us to speak and act.